Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. You're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes and set aside time to explore the reality behind a major cultural event. Today we will be talking about Hank Hanegraaff and his conversion to orthodoxy. And if conversion's even the right word to use there, it's going to be complicated and interesting. I'm Morgan Lee and I'm an assistant editor here at Christianity Today. And I am joined by Mark Gally. Hi, Mark. Hey, how you doing? It's always good to do this, and we haven't done it in a couple of weeks, so I'm like pumped that we're back doing the exactly. podcast. Mark, who is joining us today? Joining us today is Jim Stamoulis. He was born of a Greek immigrant status, and he's had a lifelong interest in the Orthodox Church. He has been a missionary. He's worked with Wheaton College. He's worked with Trinity University. He currently serves on the steering committee of the Lausanne Orthodox Initiative. He's an author of Eastern Orthodox Mission Theology today. I'm really excited to have him on the show and to meet him for the first time because his name has popped up in so many conversations in such admirable contexts that I was glad to meet. I'm glad to have him on the show and to meet him. Hey, Welcome. Jim, what's going on? Well, thanks, Mark. That was uh, that was a nice introduction, and I'm glad to meet you in person too. I I'm an avid reader of Christianity Today. My wife and I read it. We compete who gets the magazine, the print magazine first when it comes. She usually gets it. You know what's funny and ironic is that our cover story for this issue is about self control. <laughs> so we'll see which one wanna... of you refrains from grabbing it. <laughs> well, first. if you don't grab it first, you can always just say like I was practicing self control. There, That's right. There is also another solution. You could buy two subscriptions. <laughs> never mind, that, never that's, mind. That's very clever. <laughs> that's very clever. Very good marketing. Very, very exactly. clever. Very good marketing. I want to remind everyone that Quick to Listen is made possible by everyone who subscribes to Christianity Today magazine. And you can go to orderct.com slash quick to listen to get a subscription to our publication all of us um, CT podcast hosts have put together a collection of articles that will come with your subscription. If you go to orderct.com slash quick to listen, and it's a year-long subscription, you get 10 issues, you get the PDF version of the issue. And as I've said before, I think the most important thing that you get are the online archives that we have. We have so much interesting content about church history. And I think I've talked about this before that I have just really enjoyed reading this past year and lots of it was put together by Mark. Thank you, Mark. Welcome. One of my favorite jobs. I'm not surprised, as you guys both know, that we are we love history. All right, well, let's get into the topic. Last week, the radio personality that many Christians know as the Bible Answer Man announced that he was now Eastern Orthodox. Since 1989, Hank Hennegraaff has been a significant voice in the evangelical apologetics world. He served as the president of the Christian Research Institute and He's a radio show host, and I'm saying that in the past tense, but he has just been doing that since 1989. Following the announcement, Hanegraaff told listeners that there was little cause for concern about the state of his faith. He said, quote, people are posting this notion that somehow or other I've walked away from the faith and am no longer a Christian. Look, my views have been codified in 20 books, and my views have not changed. Hanegraaff's conversion to orthodoxy began with a faith-provoking trip to China where he witnessed, quote, Chinese Christians who were deeply in love with the Lord, and I learned that while I may not have had as much intellectual acumen or acknowledge as I do, they had life. 
In particular, Hanegraaff was deeply attracted to Watchman Nee's teachings about theosis, a doctrine shared by Orthodox, which says we can be so transformed as to experience a profound unity with God. That is, while remaining fully human, we become godlike. Don't worry, we will get into that more later in the show. So today on Quick to Listen, we're going to discuss orthodoxy and why even some evangelicals have found it really appealing um, and why many continue to still have some deep reservations about it. So Mark, for this gut check, let us talk about Hank Hanegraaff's announcement. I was a little surprised given uh, Hank Hanegraaff's history. On the other hand, I wasn't surprised or appalled by it because I get the attraction to orthodoxy. I have read quite a few orthodox uh, theologians over the years and found their work to be inspiring and thought-provoking, and I've been to a number of Orthodox services that have moved me deeply. So I get the attraction to Orthodoxy and why someone like Hank Hanegraaff might be attracted to it. Personally, I was very surprised, especially given the fact that, I, you know, I think I mentioned this earlier, he is a mainstay in this evangelical apologetics world. And so I had all these questions about how that would affect his ministry slash livelihood slash how he's known in the world. And his kind of decision, clearly, I mean, he's right. He's not walking away from, he's not, he's not converting to Mormonism. He's not con- converting to Islam. So it's, it's nothing that's as shocking as that, but it still feels like a pivot and a shift um, for an audience that knows him to be to be one thing, um, and then for him to come out and say, like, well, actually, I've, I've been thinking about things a lot, and there's going to be a, a big, significant change in how I practice my faith. I was also really intrigued about what someone like him would find appealing in that, given kind of the content that they talk about on his show. But I'm excited that we're going to talk more about orthodoxy today. Jim, do you have a, a gut check or gut reaction to this news about Hanegraaff? I'm of an age where very little surprises me anymore. Um, yeah, that happens the older you get, actually. That happens the older you get, yeah. It just, <laughs> you know, uh, I mean, when you have somebody like Francis Beckwith converting to Catholicism, why not? Uh, I think we have to get into more, Morgan, your questions probably would run more in the gamut of what's he going to do with tradition, because tradition is a big part of orthodoxy. Uh, and does that counter his evangelicalism? Which is very focused on Bible as a theory. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So um, I think that uh, that that's a fair question. Yeah. Can he still be the Bible answer man? Or is he the Bible and tradition answer man? Exactly. Maybe that's why he needed a new, pivoted, broader platform. All right. Well, actually, let's talk about that, though. What are the ways in which orthodoxy seems to offer Christians something that evangelicalism may lack? Well, you know, I've written about this extensively. I've sort of come down to four somewhat overlapping uh, reasons why people convert. They look for authenticity or truth. Or they look for a primitive form, whatever the primitive form is. Some think that's in simplicity of evangelicalism. Some think it's in uh, the Orthodox liturgy. There's the aesthetic value. Mark's already hinted at that. It appeals to the senses. There's also the whole idea of authority. You know, this is fixed. We know what it is. We haven't changed. I know, I've known a lot of people who've converted from uh, Protestantism, some from evangelicalism, both to Catholicism and to orthodoxy, more to orthodoxy, because it's fixed. It's settled. We don't have women priests. We're not going to have women priests. End of conversation. End of conversation. Michael Harper, who uh, some of you might know uh, of, English writer, published a book uh, in England uh, called Why Why People All Over England Are Converting to Orthodoxy. And he he was an Anglican, and he put up with all sorts of Anglican heresies, what we call heresies, until it came to women's ordination, which he had to accept. And once that came, he said, no, I'm going to turn Orthodox. And he turned Orthodox. So I can understand that. And um, there's an appeal. So people don't like the spirit of Protestantism. Is that what it is? <laughs> that, that type of some, questioning. Some don't. Uh, 
you know, the appeal of the senses is very strong, you know, uh, iconography, uh, the Yeah, smells. I'm wondering if you can just, yeah. like, kind of talk about that. I mean, I'm assuming that many of our listeners have never been in an Orthodox service. So what are they going to be seeing and experiencing there that they wouldn't in an evangelical church? A long, repetitive liturgy, oftentimes in a language, uh, unless they're in an Orthodox church in America, which uses English, in a language they don't understand. Everything's. Re- I was talking to somebody the other day, and everybody was saying, <laughs> everything's repeated three times, which is true. <laughs> Most of the prayers are repeated. Repeated three times. Icons, uh, again, depending on the church, but you'll have the icon screen, the iconostas in the front of the church. There's a lot of visual stuff going on. Incense uh, used in the service. It's it's different. What do you remember, that. Mark, from when you've been? Well, the the repetitiveness that we shouldn't uh, say that in a way that. Uh, indicates a disdain because actually evangelicals are very into repetitiveness in the repetitiveness of our praise course. Exactly. So exactly. Agree a hundred percent. Repetitiveness of a thing you are deeply appreciate is only deepens your faith. And I think that's one of the things that when you walk into a, uh, ortho- when I walk into an Orthodox service, the thing I appreciate is immediately a sense that there is the a mystery of God's presence, a palpable mystery of what God's does that presence. Mean? That means I sense I'm in a divine place. And that the combination of the incense, the iconography, and um, most of the services sung, either by the whole congregation or by a choir representing the congregation, back and forth with those who are leading the service. It seems like it's like an invitation to go someplace different rather than saying you should feel comfortable into the space, which is often what an evangelical place is, right? And their theology supports that. They basically believe, and you can correct me on this if I've misunderstood, but the worship service is a moment where heaven descends to earth. And when we're in an Orthodox worship service, we are worshiping with the angels and archangels and all the company of heaven. And when you're there, you start to think, ah, that, that may really be true. It feels pretty amazing right now. On, on, the, on the best of services, I would have to say that the most moving service I've ever been to is an Orthodox service. The most boring and frustrating service I've ever been to was an Orthodox service. That's, so. that's very true. And actually, the Orthodox, uh, Father Anglican Shreman, would say, uh, not that heaven descends, but we are actually lifted up into heaven. Okay, that would be, um, a, that's fair. And um, I think that's, that's true. Uh, and I think you're right about the services. Uh, the best services are indescribable. Those of us who have been to services where the prayers are rushed through by the priest or said in such a manner that you can't understand them, you can't participate, those services fail to move some of us. Yeah. And they have, I remember went to a service in Philadelphia. It was a Russian, old Russian Orthodox church with only like five or six people in the congregation that day. And the entire service was conducted behind the iconostasis. And the only thing we got to say was, Amen here and there. And it deeply offended my Protestant sensibilities of wanting to participate in this service. So we've talked about then the ways that it really kind of creates this like experience for you. But we should say they're, they they do not design the service to create an experience for you. Hmm. They have designed the service to believe what is truly the true reality of what's going on in space and time right now. So that would be something really important, I think, to... to yeah, I think, I think we tend to use, uh, even jungles tend to use orthodoxy as right doctrine. But if you look at the etymology, ortho, voxa, is right praise. And so orthodoxy is far more focused on Eastern orthodoxy. It's far more focused on worship correct worship than it is correct doctrine. And Mark, you used a word a few minutes ago about mystery. And mystery is really important in orthodoxy to an extent that I don't think we have, uh, certainly in evangelicalism and probably not in Protestantism at all. We're rational. It's, we know it, uh, which may get back to your surprise with Hank. Correct. <laughs> uh, because uh, 
mystery is such a huge category. Vladimir Lasky's uh, Mystical Theology, Eastern Orthodox Church, any one of the Orthodox writers will talk about mystery. And that that to me is really uh, a key to understand orthodoxy. There's another key to understand orthodoxy, and that's, quite frankly, a different theological framework. So the uh, orthodox, all, all the, uh, actually, even the oriental orthodox, not just the so-called eastern orthodox. Uh, the oriental orthodox would be? Coptic, Syrian orthodox, the Nestorians, if there's yeah, any Nestorians okay. around. Um, the, the ones that split off in the 4th and 5th century over Chalcedon, the, the non-Chalcedon. <laughs> It's not right to call them non-Chalcedonians, but we're using shorthand because this is a quick listen, right? And we, we don't. Yeah. No, <laughs> it's not a quick listen. It's quick to listen. <laughs> quick to listen. <laughs> quick to listen. Sorry. <laughs> Let's just say there are theological differences between what are called the Oriental Orthodox and the Eastern Orthodox. Very, yeah. but very few actually, and they're, very subtle. Very subtle, and very few, and they're they're coming but more probably together. Probably important to them. Yes. Anyway, exactly. But it's the theological framework that's different. So uh, classically, we could say, if you want to talk about negation, uh, apathetic theology, which is very big in Eastern Orthodoxy, the Orthodox uh, don't share the anthropology uh, of Augustine. So anthropology is different. Which means? Sorry. <laughs> which, which means that they don't believe in the uh, inherited uh, guilt. They're more Wesleyan in this sense, if to again to change our metaphor, more Wesleyan than they are Reformed uh, in their anthropology. So we're guilty. They believe in sin, but not inherited sin. We we have the, the so it's it's not it's not Augustinian anthropology. It's not legalistic juristic anthropology. What must I do to be saved? It's more their anthropology is more of a union with Christ, a joining with Christ, which eventually will come to theosis. The second part is that their soteriology is not informed by Anselm. So they don't have even the same soteriology. They don't have the, the penal substitution. The penal that, substitution that, that doesn't at all. Interest them doesn't at all. interest them at all. Yeah. It's not. It's not an issue. And their theological methods not informed by Aquinas. So the the so-called greats or the Western tradition of theology uh, is not an Eastern tradition. Augustine's not a saint. These things just. They don't matter the same way. So they use the same words. They use justification. Uh, they'll talk about sanctification. But the meaning is different. And if you don't understand that, you don't understand orthodoxy. In the respect that they long to help us appreciate the mystery, evangelical motive is just the opposite. It's to explain everything in a simple way so that the common person who doesn't have any understanding can at least grasp something of the gospel. And so the, thus the genius and the limitations of the four spiritual laws. Exactly. Tremendous summary of some gospel keys, but by itself, it's, it's it doesn't even begin to enter into the fabric of who God is. And yeah, I mean, how would Orthodox Christians make sense of something like the four spiritual laws? Is it something that's parallel to what they believe? part, but not the most important of what they believe. Where would that fit in? That's a, that's really a tough question to answer because it, it's so totally out of their framework. Exactly, yeah. I think, I think we have to go back to talk about what their conception of Adam and Eve are. A lot of times I get the impression from evangelicals that you know Adam and Eve were sort of created perfect and they fell, where the Orthodox would say Adam and Eve were children. They had to grow. Some Orthodox theologians would say that even if Adam and Eve hadn't sinned and fallen, the incarnation would still be necessary for them to be fully in the image of God, to share the image of God. So for me, my own theology, you can call it whatever you want, I think it's biblical, but um, <laughs> we start off we'll in... condemn you if we don't like Thank it. you. I appreciate that. <laughs> we start off in the garden with the image of God. That's marred. We have Jesus, who is the expressed image of God the Father. But you know, the Bible 
at least the way I read the Bible, tells me that I am going to share that image. Those of us who are redeemed share that image. Well, that's that's orthodoxy. And actually, that just backed me into theosis, because that's really where orthodoxy is coming from with theosis, that we would share, we'd be, for Second uh, Peter 1.4, we'd be partakers of the divine nature, not partakers of God's essence, but of his energy. And they split the idea of essence and energy so that we can be, uh, we can have God's energy and become part of what he really wanted us to be. How would you enter into the theosis journey? That's not something that happens by default of being alive, I'm assuming. No, it doesn't. You have to be part of the church. Obviously, the initiatory rite is baptism. If you've been to an Orthodox baptismal service, uh, you have the baptism. First, you have the renouncing of Satan, which I think is really beautiful, and I wish we saw it more in our Protestant uh, evangelical uh, baptisms. You know, let's renounce something before we take on something else. You have the renouncing of Satan. You have the baptismal washing and cleansing. But then you have the chrismation, the sealing with the Holy Spirit, the invocation of the Holy Spirit. Now, you know, that that's an infant, and a lot of your listeners are going to say, yeah, but it's consistent. It's really consistent. And so then there's no confirmation in orthodoxy. There's just a growing appreciation, growing into what it means to be fully united with Christ. The orthodox will talk about a covenantal relationship, that we have entered into a covenantal relationship with God, and that's what we're growing into. So theosis starts off for the mature person, for, for the non-infant, with purification. The renunciation of sin, what we would call, I hate to use the word justification, but sort of the conversion experience, the renunciation of sin. And then the uh, theoria, the illumination, reception of the Holy Spirit, and you move on. You're, you're growing into this relationship, this fulfillment of what we were meant to be. Actually, I like it. I'm, I think it's I think it's biblical. Uh, I'm For those of you listening, I'm not a card-carrying Orthodox. Please don't misunderstand me. I am a card-carrying Evangelical, whatever that means. And he, he did show us his card before he walked into I the did. studio. I did. I showed the card, yes. <laughs> um, but I really think that there are some insights from the Eastern Orthodox theological tradition that are really, really valuable. We've had a uh, few writers over the years, you know, Protestant evangelicals who have written articles for us at NCT on theosis, talking about how even evangelicals can adopt it in a way that works for our theological framework. So Jim's not alone in this. This is a trend among uh, many evangelical theologians. There seems nothing more evangelical than finding an, <laughs> a different tradition and then loving it, but then remaining evangelical. Exactly. We like to steal anything good from anywhere that will help us be better Christians. And I, I think I think that's part of the problem, that uh, we tend to steal. Or borrow, like languages uh, borrow, right? Yeah. <laughs> but we don't understand the context, the theological context of the framework. And uh, part of my passion is that we understand the theological framework of uh, what we're talking about. And, and broaden our own theological framework from, from being so rationalistic to having the possibility of mystery. God is a genius storyteller. And the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. 
Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. Well, this is like a great time to pivot. I mean, we've obviously been talking about some really interesting and beautiful theological concepts. Just talk about why Protestants and evangelicals in particular, what do they find troubling about the Orthodox tradition? I don't know. What do you think, Mark? What do you think they find troubling? Well, it is certainly, uh, and this is the, something the Orthodox themselves criticize themselves for. Uh, it is cap. It, it, many of the tradi- many of the streams, the various. What, what's the word for it? Orthodox, um, Ukrainian Orthodox. Yeah, the the nationalistic churches are the nationalistic. Churches, they remain. They are as much cultural, if not more cultural, mm-hmm. than they are particularly Christian. So that you actually, when you walk into some churches, they are not, their services are not in English. And You mean the, American services? Yeah, American services. They're not in English. And the festivals, the parties, the fellowship gatherings they have are very much tied to their cultural heritage. So it doesn't feel inviting to an American. So that's, that's more on a superficial level. I would say theologically, certainly uh, because of their different theological framework, a lot of certainly Reformed people would, ha- would struggle with it, although they deeply identify with the notion of covenant. My impression, just to, just to speak frankly, I think the Orthodox are subject to falling into a kind of a works righteousness because of their doctrine of theosis. I think theosis can move in that direction if you're not if you're not if it's not guarded by justification by faith alone. Another one is just very practical. When you enter into the Orthodox world, you enter into a different time frame. Their liturgical calendar is different than even the Roman Catholic liturgical calendar and Anglican. Now, this year they happen to celebrate the same, but you'd be celebrating if you'd be the only person in your family, or your family would be the only person in your extended family who would be celebrating Easter, other events. Your practice of fasting would be much more radical and it would require much more accommodation by anyone you visited with or talked to because you're, because the fasting restrictions are fairly intense. I, I call them Orthodox, the Marine, Marines of Christians. They're very passionate, dedicated, but it requires, I don't know that if a single, even if a single person can convert unless his whole family converts, because it's just, it would really be make, it would really be hard to do. Yeah. I, I think actually a lot of single persons have converted, uh, but it is hard. And I've, I've talked to parents whose children have converted, grown children have converted. Converted, uh, who are are heartbroken? Uh, they're heartbroken because they can't they can't share the Eucharist with them. Uh, they they're heartbroken because so much is different. And I think uh, everything you've said is true. The linguistic and cultural barriers, more cultural barriers, are are pretty high. Uh, these are uh, cultural communities. Uh, the parish I grew up in is a is a Greek. It was really a cultural. It was a cultural experience. We were you know we were a minority in a non Orthodox world, Roman Catholics, Protestants around us, and uh, we were we were looked down upon, uh, at least in my own small hometown, uh, by both uh, because we were different. Uh, but I think the iconography, the the way the liturgy is done, um, especially if it's not in English, but even if it's in English, uh, there's there's just a strangeness about it that is has nothing to do with theology and more with comfort level. Yeah, that's probably fair. It is a completely different way of, in a sense, reaching out to the unbeliever or the... It, whereas in the evan- evangelicals, we're very anxious that the service be user-friendly, that it be very much like the world they come out of. And for the Orthodox, and this would be similarly true of Catholic and Anglican to some degree, the point of coming into church is to come out of the world for a little bit and to be in a place that's completely different. And that, for American psychology, that's just kind of a, a hard bridge to cross unless you're looking for that different experience. I, I guess I'm just listening to you guys talk about it, and it almost seems, though, that we're grading as too hard of a word, but evaluating 
orthodoxy on something it wasn't ever supposed to be, which is how conversion-friendly is it? That seems like it would only become a question if it gets moved, if people who are practicing orthodoxy end up moving to another place, and then they would like to marry with some of the people who are outside the church, and then you would want to convert and join. To what extent is it actually that kind of counterculture or mysterious if the entire nation also practices and observes in the same way that you do? Yeah, this is this is the genius of orthodoxy, and this is uh, you know that's why I could write my doctoral dissertation on orthodox mission theology. Their missionaries, as opposed to the missionaries from Rome, used the vernacular languages. They translated the liturgy and the Bible and the Bible into the vernacular. They had indigenous clergy. Uh, the third step was the local self of the church, which, depending on the ecclesiastical powers around them, was more or less successful. But these, these became embedded in the culture. I mean, how did, how did uh, Greece survive 400 years of uh, Ottoman oppression? The church. The church kept their culture alive. What happened in Russia under communism? The church kept the culture alive. Um, and we see the resurgence of the Russian Orthodox Church in Russia for that. The problem comes not in those countries, but when they immigrate. And so you have a, a plethora of jurisdictions here. You mentioned Ukrainian, Russian, Greek. The Russian Orthodox, the original Russian Orthodox Church, there are breakaway groups, became the Orthodox Church in America, adopted English, and really was a stunning, in my opinion, stunning coup. <laughs> for the uh, OCA. That's at the Orthodox Church Orthodox in America. Orthodox Church in America. But, you know, that wasn't followed by the other jurisdictions because they couldn't give up their culture. They Some of them are still getting immigration from the home countries, uh, Greece, Ukraine. But to be fair, the Antiochians have done a, a really good job of reaching out to I was just going to mention, I was just okay. going to mention the Antiochians. The Antiochians absorbed uh, Peter Gilquist's Orthodox Church, uh, Evangelical Orthodox Church, and they've done a really great job uh, reaching out and having a bit of a Western Rite orthodoxy, which uh, is permitted. It's it's allowed. I think this is the, the Antiochians are really uh, an important um, factor in this whole equation. But but the uh, traditional ethnic churches, which is interesting, Hank Hanegraaff joined a Greek Orthodox Church, and I listened to his uh, apology online, and you know he said uh, we we want to be able to to understand the Bible better. I thought, well, maybe, but the liturgy's in Byzantine Greek. They read the Koine, and if there's a sermon, it's in modern Greek if they're using Greek uh, as a language. But it's okay, Hank. If, if it floats your boat, it's okay with me. You know? I'm not going to—I I don't want to criticize him. No, know? exactly, I, yeah. I, I, I've, again, I've come to the stage in life, not just nothing surprises me, but I've come to the stage in life where I say, you know, what's important is— do you know Jesus? Is Jesus becoming more real? Are you becoming more like Christ, like we're supposed to be? The rest of it. I, we can agree to disagree. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. I don't want to say it's ephemeral. It's not ephemeral, but it has nothing to do with the, import, the importance. And that, that's what I challenge my my Orthodox friends on. You know, stay Orthodox, but but have a real deep meaning for the same for my evangelical friends. Stay evangelical, but walk closer to Christ. So many people, Orthodox, evangelicals, they got the ticket. You know, I've been baptized or... You know, I've, I've come said, to Christ. I've, I've, I've said the sinner's prayer. Yeah. I said the sinner's prayer. I'm okay. No, you're not okay. That's not what the Bible says. That's not what Paul says. What Paul says is we're going to grow in Christ, grow in sanctification. We're going to become more like Jesus. That's that's what I want for my life. That's what I want for my family's life. The defining characteristics of evangelicals. The defining characteristic is: Do you know Jesus? I think that's more central to 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 a definition of evangelicalism than even the authority of Scripture or the inerrancy of Scripture. Would that would that kind of factor into why you decided to leave Orthodoxy? You know, 
in some of my writings, as I've already hinted, conversions are complex. I grew up uh, as, really as a theist, not really understanding who Jesus was and what the gospel was all about. And I heard it clearly enunciated by some of my friends who were in the university group at the secular university I was at. And it was that, not just the knowledge of Christ and the, the uh, spiritual awakening that I had, but is really the fellowship. And I think that's what we're all seeking for. We, we have the the uh, vertical relationship with God through Christ, but then we, we're looking for a, a horizontal relationship, a, a community. You know, once you're in a community long enough, uh, I've been a believer for committed Jesus follower for more than a half century, it's kind of hard to yeah, shift gears. Shift, yeah, yeah. you know, shift community. Plus, I mean, you know, this is used as a textbook in this country, in Your seminaries. Yeah. yeah, but it's also been translated into Russian. It's used as a textbook okay. in Russia, in the seminaries for their training of missionaries. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sort of. Uh, I've told my Orthodox friends, you know, first of all, I believe more Orthodox theology now as a card carrying evangelical than I ever did as a card carrying Orthodox. That's that's point one. Point two, if I'd have stayed a card carrying Orthodox. I'd have never written anything. And so in the providence of God, this is my journey. It's not anyone else's journey. It's my journey. And my journey took me the way it is. So Morgan, to answer your question, I just, I tried to be obedient to to the leading of the Holy Spirit and, and leave it at that. One of the things my wife and I have learned over the years, and I have to give credit to my wife, Evelyn, we've learned to bless God's work wherever we find it. You know, there are a lot of, lot of stuff that, you know, we've, we have some... We have some wild charismatic friends. We have some not so wild charismatic friends. We have some, <laughs> and I'm prepared to bless anything that's done in the name of Jesus and let, let God sort it out with them. You know, if someone's trying to follow Christ, the Holy Spirit can work in their lives and sort them out. Uh, I don't need to be constantly covering. Yeah, yeah constantly I don't need hovering. to be a critic. I want to bless. And so, uh, you know, I, I, I bless my Orthodox friends. I bless my Catholic friends. And I want them to know more and go deeper in Jesus. Amen. I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit about why there are so many divisions within Orthodoxy itself. Well, a lot of it has to do with their theological methodology. And uh, Mandorf, in his foreword to my book, talks about that. Um, I point out the use of the vernacular, and Mandorf picks that up in the foreword and says, you know, that's, that's the problem. We were so successful that we imbued so much in the culture that when they came into the diaspora, left their countries, left the Ukraine, left Russia, left Greece, Romania, wherever the Orthodox Church was, that culture remained, that linguistic tradition. So literally the churches have more to do with, with language being spoken. Like that's the reason for the division is because— in, in, it At was... least in this country. Yeah, in this country. Mark and I have already talked a little bit about the, the non so-called non-Chalcedonians, which were th uh, theological divisions. But actually those with the cops, really, that was more of a nationalistic division as well in the in the 4th century, 5th century. So, yeah, it's, it has more to do with identity. And the people identity, that they were reaching and to, the people, right? And the people they were reaching, but more national identity. And another thing, you were talking, too, about them adopting the common vernacular when they would go places, and that kind of allowed them to be accessible. Did that also have the effect, though, of them preserving that type of way of speaking and doing prayers as opposed to being something that had a more like fluidity? For sure. I mean, you know, you got uh, in the Russian church, you've got Church Slavonic, which is 
really old. And in the Greek church, you got Byzantine Greek. So it did. It, it's a bit like our King James. Is it, was that the intention like or was that, do you think that was more of like a political type of thing? It just seems weird if they were so good. I mean, we were talking earlier about evangelicals contextualizing, right? As if that was an evangelical idea, but you're making it sound like Orthodox. They, they were first. The Orthodox were first at it. But like anything else, uh, it can ossify. And uh, once you have a, a liturgy that is venerable and old, it's hard. I mean, the Russian, if you know anything about the Russian old believers, it's Tikhon, I think, Patriarch Tikhon, try, this is, we're talking 17th century, tried to, to bring the liturgy in line with the Greek liturgy. And the old believers split. And they're still old believers now because they said, you can't touch our liturgy, even though it was not in line with the, as we say, mainline Orthodox, <laughs> mother Orthodox. Tradition on steroids. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it's really, it's, it's interesting. You know, uh, people are strange. <laughs> and and we, we hold on to things that, and evangelicals do the same way. We hold on to things that we could easily give up on. But, gee, granddad did it, and great-granddad did it, and... Our yeah. church has always done it this way. We've always had this this event, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Know. Any yeah. pastor knows that feeling. Yeah, exactly. Could you name, maybe just to close our conversation, one or two things that evangelicals could specifically learn from the Orthodox Church that would make us better evangelicals? I uh, like the focus on the Trinity. My theological training did not focus me as much on the—it's uh, no, it's my fault, right? It's not my professor's fault. And— and if I'm still alive and listening to this program, I'm not blaming you. And any of you listening in heaven, you know the truth, so it's okay. But uh, I found uh, a focus when I did Orthodox th- uh, studies, my Orthodox studies, a real focus on uh, the Trinity was really important to me. And uh, and also a focus on the presence of the Holy Spirit in the congregation. Now, that that's Orthodox theology, which unfortunately is not practice in the Orthodox churches, most Orthodox churches. But really, the locus of the Holy Spirit is on the whole community. And that, to me, was a really important um, discovery and uh, changed my life. That, that I think, and also really theosis, union with Christ. I, I'm, um, I've been changed by those, by that. It's, it's impossible to be an Orthodox Christian and not be a part of a church where in evangelicalism, there's a whole stream of people who want to be evangelicals and not be a part of a church. But in Orthodoxy, that's a illogical non sequitur because that's where you meet the Holy Spirit. That's where you meet Jesus Christ. There's a good patristic saying that says, if anyone's lost, he's lost alone. And if anyone's saved, he's saved only in the community of the church. Uh, that can be abused, but boy, there's, there's a lot of truth in that. Thanks for this discussion, guys. So now we're going to have the time of the show that we call Slow to Speak, which is when we read feedback from our listeners. And we have a couple notes of feedback that we want to bring up today. The first thing that I thought we would address would be a recent article in Inheritance Magazine, which is a publication that is written largely by and to Asian American Christians. And um, we wanted to acknowledge an article that they recently published on their website that was focusing on a podcast that Mark and I recorded back in December. Um, This podcast was asking whether Trump's white evangelical supporters are racist. So this article by Inheritance was called The Model Minority Myth and the Wedge Between Black and White America. And obviously, for further context, you can go search this article and read everything they're going to say. I'm just going to summarize the gist of this argument, which was responding to some of Mark's comments about 
stereotyping. And in particular, Mark had spoken about how he felt he had positive stereotypes when he saw Asian Americans. And this article was trying to address those remarks. So here we go. We must remember the history of the model minority myth and the function it serves. The true purpose of viewing Asians as superior is not to compliment Asians, nor to denigrate whites, but to undergird black oppression. Whenever someone says, quote, Asians are naturally, insert positive characteristic, unquote, the unspoken corollary has been and continues to infer, quote, and black people are not. Now, Mark, you've responded a little bit to this to them on Facebook, and then I know that they've re-responded, um, but we did want to take some time to also respond to them again, once again, on this podcast. Happy to do that. You know, my gut check response, as we are apt to say on our show, is one of sadness at, at how much work we still have to do to achieve ethnic re- reconciliation and how much misunderstandings uh, there are. So, and it doesn't help that people like me sometimes, more often than I care to admit, uh, say things spontaneously that don't really communicate the full orb of what I think or believe. So this response reminded me that what appears to me to be an innocent comment can come across as bias and prejudice because of our current cultural context and conversation. And I get that. It was a really good reminder for me. As a professional communicator, of course, I should know better. So I'm really grieved when I fail to be clear. So I'm really grateful for pushback like this. Yeah. And it's a good reminder that intent and impact are often differently perceived, right? Based on the context. Yeah, exactly. Um, And When we get feedback like this again, it's important, I guess, just to kind of call us out in those areas and saying like, okay, you may have tried to mean something, which I think this particular article talks about, you know, this idea of complimenting Asians, right, where the intent is to compliment, but what it can end up hearing like or being perceived as such. Yeah, I I do want to say one thing that after we recorded this episode, you and me and our producer chatted and debriefed it a little bit. And we we talked about the importance of the gut check on our show and how the gut check is a great place for us to have visceral and personal reactions to what we're thinking about and what is going on. And we really want to preserve that and do that well, but that actually we want to kind of refrain from doing gut checks over the course of the show. And so I think we've kind of structurally tried to just keep the gut check when the gut check is going on and move the conversation to like larger, bigger thematic things that are a little bit less visceral and personal over the course of it. Amen. Yeah, exactly. I think we have some more feedback, too. Yeah, this comes from uh, gentleman Ben uh, Schmidtdeal. I think that's how you pronounce it. He expressed a number of concerns about our broadcast uh, of the panel on Donald Trump. Uh, here's just which a couple, was last week's episode. Which was la- last week's episode. And here are a couple of excerpts. First, I do not understand why it is okay to refer to our setting, sitting president continually in such disdainful tones. Second, I am quite sure for most evangelicals who voted for him, Donald Trump was not their first choice. However, thank God, he was a tremendously better choice than the alternative. All in all, the panel of self-described thought leaders thought that everyone who does not agree with them, apparently 81% of evangelicals, is unbiblical, undisciplined, or unchurched, and generally need to be led by those who know so much more. It has not occurred to them that maybe they are the ones who are out of step. Thanks for the feedback, Ben. We appreciate it. And (laughs) Mark and I were talking about this before we got on the recording about the composition of the panel, and I think that we agreed that although the conversation went well, because the conversation was about white evangelicals who had voted for Trump, and we had only white evangelicals who didn't vote for Trump. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it might be helpful yeah. next time to bring their voices in there as well. Yeah. So that was that partly the responsibility of the moderator to not notice that right up front. But I'm glad Ben wrote and just 
flag that for us. Thank you, Ben. As always, everyone is welcome to give us feedback. The easiest ways to give that feedback are on Twitter and Facebook. We're on Twitter at CT Podcasts. We're also at on Facebook at facebook.com slash CT Podcast. And thank you, everyone, for engaging us in these discussions. Your feedback is very important. We are now going to have the time of the show that we call Precious Moments, which is the time where we are all more made more human on the show. Basically, we all shout out something that's giving us joy or bringing us happiness. And then if you're online, you can tell people where they can find you. Jim, do you want to go first? Christos Anesti. Which he, he has he, risen indeed. That's right. I, I don't know how to say it in Greek. Alithos Anesti. Okay. Uh, that's, that's brought tremendous joy. Uh, I'm... Uh, I'm a, I'm a great music fan of all sorts of music, but there's a song by Wheeler from the third day on that I've been listening to. And it talks about Friday and Saturday and how they were days of despair and darkness, but from the third day on. And the punch the punchline, the chorus says, make sure you're living from the third day on. And that's what I want to try and do. I want to live in the resurrection. You know, uh, my wife, who was uh, years ago and lived in Pennsylvania directing a children's choir, um, they, had, they sang a song for one program that was, Every morning is Easter morning from now on. And I think we forget that, that Christ is risen. And because he's risen, everything is different. Everything is different. So that's that's a real. And we just had Easter, so we can't forget it. Thanks for sharing that. Is there a place that people can find you online? Do you have a website? Are you on social media? If they want to find out more about your project, the Luzon Project. Oh, well, that's great because the Luzon Orthodox Initiative has its own website. Look us up. on Just go, just put on Luzon Orthodox Initiative. We'll put a link to it, it in the podcast yeah. description. Yeah. And uh, we have a book out from our first two consultations in Albania, The Mission of God, Studies an Orthodox and Evangelical Mission, uh, that is I think, worth reading. Uh, and if you want to look for any of my writings, you can look on Amazon. They're still in print. Thank you. Awesome. Mark? Yeah, my precious moment relates to Easter as well. I went to a, an event, an Easter gathering at my daughter's house here in West Chicago, in which there were 22 adults, 10 children, and four infants, <laughs> or something along those lines. It was a house full of family and friends from, uh, new friends and friends from many years, and uh, it was just a, a joyous occasion. It was a beautiful day, and it was a great gathering. I'm glad that it really encouraged you. That's awesome. Did you enjoy hanging out with all the kids, or did you avoid them? Oh, yeah, because I, I have a magic trick or two under my sleeve. So I made uh, eggs disappear and then appear in their ears or their armpits or wherever that would give them joy. <laughs> and they would just, you know, they're five or six, so they can't, they, they don't know this, what's going on with the sleight of hand. And it's just such a delight to, for their eyes to pop when they see it appear out of nowhere. Oh, it's apparently. the best. I yeah. completely agree. All right, where can people find you online? I am not necessarily online very often, but I do publish a newsletter called The Galley Report, and you can subscribe to that or even read the current edition by going to christianitytoday.com slash thegalleyreport. Okay, my precious moment is very shallow. So just a disclaimer, everybody. I'm reading this young adult series that was recommended to me by someone in the building. It's about vampires. And <laughs> I completely own up to how shallow it is. But I've read three of the books in a week. And it's, there's six books in the week. Don't worry. I'm not going to say the name of it on there to further discredit myself. <laughs> it's fun to read, guys. What can I say? All right. Um, people can find me on Twitter at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. Thank you to everyone for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is a production of Christianity Today, and you can find our other podcasts by searching iTunes for Christianity Today. If you want to get 
a copy of CT. You can do that by going to orderct.com slash quick to listen. Thank you to our producers, Richard Clark and Cray Allred. Thank you for everyone who subscribes to our show. And you can do that, a reminder, by going to iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please make sure to rate and review us on iTunes. And thank you to everyone who has. Those are really meaningful to us. See you all next week. Bye.